Let us pray. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Uh, I'm Bishop Mary Gray Reeves, and I'm your substitute bishop today uh, because Bishop Sam is in Costa Rica on a partnership visit, you probably know this, uh, that's been delayed for a couple of years because of COVID. So uh, I moved to Charlotte from California, where I served as a diocesan bishop for 12 years um, as a way of transitioning into some new work and uh, to be closer to family. My husband passed away about seven years ago, so it was a, a pretty big transition for me. I arrived just weeks before COVID hit, and I'm so thankful to have had a great neighborhood to land in and find community there and uh, find a church home in St. Peter's in Uptown Charlotte and um, to be with a great diocese. So it's my pleasure and blessing to be with you this morning and to get to know you and uh, to just be the body of Christ together on this uh, wonderful celebratory day of discipleship and commitment of people stepping forward and deepening their lives of faith. You, in, you inspire us today, confirmands and those being received and uh, re reaffirming their baptismal vows. So thank you for that. Uh, when I was a brand new priest about 28 years ago, I served a church in Los Angeles, Christ Church Redondo Beach, and one of our ministries was to be in partnership with an organization called Corazón, which means heart in Spanish. And uh, Corazón partnered Americans and Mexicans to build homes in the northern part of Mexico in very, very impoverished neighborhoods. Uh, you would build, the, the, the congregation would uh, fund the little house and would provide all the labor. Uh, there would be an advanced team that would be down there during the week of Mexican and American partners to discern uh, who would receive the home because, of course, there were lots of people wanting to participate in this and there were requirements, important questions to ask. Could they take care of the home once it was built? Uh, what would the neighborhood relationships be like after one person had a new home and another person did not? You can begin to imagine the complexity of that. The home would be constructed in one day. It was 16 feet by 20. It had a floor and walls and a roof and a door with a lock. It had a little kitchen counter and a loft where people could sleep and a couple of windows. There were beautiful little houses, maybe the first tiny house. And uh, the first build that I went on, I have zero construction skills, I'll just say that, but I have some pretty decent Spanish language skills. And so I had the pleasure and joy of spending the day with the woman for whom the home would be built, who was actually in quite a bit of grief as she let go of her home. Her home was torn down in about 30 minutes. Cardboard, plywood, no floor, no door that locked. And as I sat with her, her name was Lupe, we sat together and she wept 
as the house came apart. There were some marigolds planted in front of the house, and I said, why don't we dig those up, and we will hold on to those for the day and plant them in front of the new house. If you know, in Mexican culture, the marigold is a sign of resurrection hope. That's why you see that flower on the Day of the Dead, uh, decorations and the symbols. That's what it means. It was so powerful that they were planted in front of her house, and we could dig them up and put a little water in them in a plastic bag, and they stayed with us throughout the day. Sometimes we stayed by the work site, and sometimes she needed to come away from it, and we would watch from the distance or even just listen to the hammering and the sawing going on. She told me about her life and her three children. She told me about the father of her children that uh, was a violent man and uh, would do some pretty atrocious things. Uh, we talked about the grief when there was no house and not a new one yet built, and the good things that happened in that place. And then we talked about what was the impact going to be in her life of having this incredible gift of grace given to her. How was life going to change? Having a door that locked, we take for granted the agency of a house key. Her children and she would be safe. How is that going to change in the dynamics with her neighbors, other people waiting for this great gift? Was she up to the task of taking care of this home? It was far more complicated and complex than I had imagined. And as we spent the day together, this life just unfolded. And it was so amazing to watch the head of the construction crew hand her that key. And a whole new life was beginning. A whole new life was beginning. I realize when I look back on that story that this woman was of deep spiritual maturity. She had an amazing ability to stay right with the moment, to grieve the loss that was happening, and to uh, welcome this new life, this resurrection that was coming. And resurrection is not easier than death. If you've had to start over again in life, you know. <laughs> it's not easy to start over. It might be good news. It might be new life. But it's hard. There's a lot to think about. It's beautiful to see those houses on the hillsides of northern Mexico. As Christians, we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to renew our baptismal covenant today. Some people are here just to reaffirm that vow. And we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not to look at it and say, isn't that nice that Jesus did that? And depending on your theology, did that for us and our salvation. It's not a creedal statement. It's a process that we are called to live over and over again. 
Lupe, I think, had had to get really good at the process in terms of the poverty that she lived in, letting things go, taking new things on, letting things die, letting them rise. Death and resurrection was the pattern that moved her along in life. It helped her to take in yet more grace. And being baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means we, we do as Christ did. We live that pattern. That's how we live our lives. And we live in a culture <laughs> that really works against it. Our culture says, you don't, you don't want to suffer. You don't want to die. We're all avoiding that all the time. And yet, uh, nature is made that way. Uh, we wouldn't have food if death and resurrection didn't occur. It's a process embedded into the creation. It's at the heart of our faith, uh, not because it's a great story, but because it works. It works. And it takes courage and some hard work. Today we have the story of the prodigal son. It's the third story about uh, being lost and found in the 15th chapter of Luke. The first story is about a sheep, one sheep that is part of a herd of 100. One sheep gets lost, and the shepherd goes after the one sheep, leaving the 99. Now, in my capitalist brain, that is bad economics, is it not? You see, who would do that? You could potentially lose the other 40, 50, or all of them. It's a ridiculous story. And Jesus says, oh, and then he finds the one and comes back and has a great big celebration. And the people listening, this text is clear to say, we have the first verse in our lectionary reading. It's tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. It's the people that seem to mess up all the time, exploit, do terrible things, and all the know-it-alls <laughs> that are really well-versed in the law and the rules and how to be a good person, right? But it doesn't make sense to anybody in those two groups, I'm pretty sure. The second one is a little easier to handle. It's a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one in her house, and she searches the house all over to find the lost coin. And then she throws a great big party to celebrate. She probably spends the value of the coin on the party. That one makes more sense because it's a confined space. It's not a living creature that can wander off. It's a coin. See. And then we come to the prodigal son. And we're not talking about sheep here. And we're not talking about coins. We're talking about family. And that is a whole different story, is it not? And we know the story if we've been to church some other times in our lives. If it's a new story to you, you'll find the theme other places in literature. It's not unfamiliar. One son who thinks he can do it better than everybody else, all generations before him, treats his father like he's dead, which I think is worse than the squandering. Hey, give me what you're going to give me when you die. Listen to that sentence and how that must have felt for the father. But he does it. 
Perhaps he's thinking, you know, a spiritual crisis is a terrible thing to waste, so let's just encourage yours because you're headed there one day or another, so let me help you. <laughs> Who knows? But for whatever reason, he lets his son go with all of his assets, which could be earning interest in the years he's still living, right? Bad economics again. The son comes to himself, but you know, only we the readers know that. In the story, the father and the older son don't know that. How would you feel if your son came back and said, oh please, can I just have a job? <laughs> I've spent everything else. I'm not sure I'd trust my child if I still felt some betrayal in that. But he does. This father is a gracious giver. He is a gracious giver, and he's back in the position of giving. I can imagine in his mind, he's saying, today's today and tomorrow is tomorrow. Let's have a party. My son who was lost is now found. We can deal with the rest as we go along. The older son is not so generous, probably plays it a little more safe in his life, not as adventurous as the younger one, may not take the business risks the little brother did, and he's full of resentment. He cannot get there where his father is. And we've all been somebody, all, <laughs> probably every character in this story. Because this is a real life story. It's one day, one day in the life of this family. It's going to take a lot of conversations after the party's finished to restore the relationships to forgive again and again and again, probably all the hurts that are there. Uh, we're all part of families, so I'm gonna hazard a guess <laughs> that this scenario is playing out probably in a whole bunch of stories. I don't even know you and you don't know me, but I think it's pretty true, right? Somewhere on the level, the complexity of human relationships, of deep, gracious love, the need for forgiveness and the power of it. It's working out everywhere. We see it in our country. We see it around the globe. We see it at our kitchen table. It's never just a day. The process we get by our baptism is death and resurrection. The mission we get is reconciliation. That's the work of the church. We heard it in 2 Corinthians this morning, page 855 in your Book of Common Prayer in the Outline of Faith. What is the mission of the church? It is to reconcile uh, people, ourselves, with God in Christ. That's it. We have this beautiful dad who is a gracious father. And most certainly, it is a model of what we understand God to be in Jesus Christ. Just this abundant, eternal, infinite grace. But it doesn't come without wisdom and discernment. And spiritual maturing 
that comes with practice. Every death and resurrection event is an opportunity to practice reconciliation. Today we will reaffirm our baptismal vows and invite us just to ponder those things a little more deeply. And again, I thank uh, our confirmands, those being received and reaffirming their vows publicly today. I thank you for your journey and for taking your Christian life seriously and uh, daily and recognizing that it's unfolding in you as you are in this community. Thank you for being a witness to us. Amen.